Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics on CHNL. I'm Terry Lake filling in for Shane Woodford. Lots to talk about since our last show. Of course, the Christy Clark government lost a confidence vote and uh, uh, Ms. Clark resigned the Premiership and Lieutenant Governor Judith Guichon did what many expected and asked NDP leader John Horgan to form a government, the first NDP government in 16 years. To discuss all of these developments and also to look into the coming months, which uh, should be very interesting in Victoria, our regular contributors, Vaughn Palmer, columnist with the Vancouver Sun, Keith Baldry, legislative reporter for Global Television, and Rob Shaw, legislative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Uh, gentlemen, first of all, let's talk about the Lieutenant Governor's decision itself. Uh, was this a surprise to anybody? I think she made the right call, Terry. Uh, it is unusual, however, in our system for the uh, Lieutenant Governor, the Vice Regal Representative, to turn down advice from the elected premier. Normally, uh, the lieutenant governor takes that advice. Christy Clark recommended an election. Judith Gishon instead accepted Clark's resignation and called on John Horgan. And uh, Ms. Clark obviously made the argument that uh, this is not a tenable situation, that it, it, it can't provide long-lasting good government. Uh, but what's, uh, what's your view, Keith, on, on how long this this tenuous uh, NDP government might last? Well, I think it can last for a little while. I think they can get through the fall here. There's only uh, a couple times they'll face confidence, uh, confidence vote. They've already won four votes uh, in that short session we had. They defeated the government at first reading on a couple of bills and, and passed a non-confidence motion and defeated the throne speech. So they've shown that they can, they can win the votes in the House. The, uh, now, the, the numbers are going to flip a bit because they're going to have to put a speaker in the chair, and the speaker's going to have to vote uh, in case of a tie. And by convention, the speaker does not vote for legislation unless it's confidence legislation because the speaker's supposed to vote only to maintain status quo and to continue debate. So that's, that's a hurdle they got to get over. Uh, again, it's by convention. It's not set down in law or something that the speaker can't vote, but... That's, that's one little uh, um, hurdle they've got to get over. But other than that, I think they can make the place work. And as Rob's noted in a piece this week, and I did as well, that uh, they can achieve a heck of a lot outside of the chamber through cabinet orders and regulations and the like. And I suspect they're going to spend a lot of time doing that. So, Rob, you uh, did have a, a great article outlining, you know, all the things you can do without legislation. Certainly, uh, in my experience, uh, government work is... Uh, part of it done in the legislature, but a lot of it done at the cabinet table uh, and in minister's office. So uh, just talk about uh, some of the major things that can be done without having to go to the legislature. Yeah, well, you know, Terry, you would know better than I, but, uh, you know, at the cabinet table, you can make ministerial orders, pass orders in council, change regulations, and a lot of the New Democrat agenda, I, when I just did a kind of glance at the platform and, and the green agreement that they came up with. I, I came up with about three-quarters of it you could probably do without actually passing legislation. Now, a fair bit of it requires a budget, which is passed in the legislature, but a lot of it, you know, sending Site C um, for review, raising the minimum wage and, and the welfare rate, um, creating your Ministry of Mental Health, uh, cancelling the Massey Bridge, and all sorts of things like that. So you can do basically through cabinet orders if you have the money um some of it is going to require a budget you know the ten dollar a day child care um the school funding formula stuff and the corporate tax hike does require a budget but you can throw it all in there and pass that budget uh as a confidence matter 
which the Greens, in their agreement, have agreed to support confidence matters. So you could package it all together and, and, and get it through. And the only stuff that really kind of requires legislation are things that we know about banning corporate and union donations and um, you know changing the election date and, uh, and that type of stuff. I will note, talking to Carol James about this, she raised an interesting point that we put in the story, which was the NDP might bring forward legislation in the fall that it doesn't actually pass on electoral reform and corporate and union donations, and instead kickstart public discussion, and then change the bill, reintroduce it in the fall or in the spring, and pass it then, which kind of raises a question of whether the party is actually going to ban corporate and union donations uh, in September or October when the ledge comes back, and if not, are they going to keep accepting uh, those, which has caused a bit of a kerfuffle in the last little while. So that's a We'll be talking about that, uh, you know, in the weeks to come. It seems to me that's one of the major potential rifts between the uh, the BCNDP and the and the Green Party is uh, is the way the parties are financed. Uh, the BC Greens have been very clear: uh, no union donations, no corporate donations. Yeah, the the uh, the two parties have agreed to extend the deadline for calling the legislature back. Originally, the agreement between them, Terry said. The House would be called back within a month. Well, with the Cabinet swearing in on the 18th of July, they've decided that a mid-August sitting is uh, not desirable. They're putting it off till after Labor Day. And you're right, uh, Rob has reported this, that the NDP is saying, well, they'll bring in, introduce legislation in September. They may not pass it right away. Now, Weaver has an interesting comeback to that. I interviewed him last evening on the show that I host on the cable channel, and Weaver said, well, one thing that he's looking at would be to ask the NDP that when they bring in the bill banning union and corporate donations, they announce in the legislation that it is retrospective, that the ban takes effect that day. There are to be no more donations. So even if the legislation isn't passed for weeks or perhaps even months, the ban takes effect then. Government legislation can do that, and he thinks that would be one way to put a stop to all this fundraising that the two major parties are doing, all the while claiming they don't support it in the long run. Well, we'll see if Horgan goes <coughs> goes along with that suggestion. I mean, that's a, that's an artful out for Weaver, but uh, until the NDP agrees to that, it's uh, as Rob says, we'll be talking about this for some time. Uh, exactly what I uh, was thinking, too. I, I wonder... Uh, how much consultation is going on between uh, Mr. Horgan and Mr. Weaver on that point, because I think it would be difficult for the NDP uh, to give up the in-kind donations particularly, because it's not uncommon for NDP campaigns to have uh, staffers that are on loan from uh, labor groups working on their campaigns. So uh, that, that could be a, a bit of a rift between those, uh, those two uh, parties. Let's let's turn our mind now to uh, to the new government. Uh, July 18th, we'll have uh, a new government sworn in, and of course, part of that is uh, picking a cabinet. Everyone wants to be in cabinet, and uh, there are people that have been around with the NDP for a number of years that have done a good job. Uh, so let's talk about some of those major cabinet positions. Uh, Rob, what what do you see uh, expect to see in those major spots? Well, you know, it's going to be a tough balance uh, for John Organ when he sets this up, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of veterans who've been around for a number of years. They have suffered on the opposition benches, and they and they expect some type of reward uh, for many terms uh, stuck over there in their tiny little offices. So 
Um, I mean, there are the obvious veterans that you can pretty much slot into cabinet right away. Carol James, you know, Mike Farmworth, Bruce Ralston, people like that. But you start to hit issues of geographic uh, shortcomings in, in the NDP, uh, lacking MLAs basically from the interior and the north entirely. Only four MLAs outside of Metro Vancouver and the, and the island. Um, too many in Vancouver. I'm sure they would view it as an overabundance of riches, but you got eight of 11 seats the NDP hold there, and big names like David Eby and Adrian Dix and Shane Simpson and Melanie Mark and uh, George Heyman and George Chow. I mean, it goes on and on, and you can't slot them. That's eight people out of a, maybe a 20-person cabinet, so you can't put them all in. So there's going to be disappointed people in, in this cabinet for sure. you got to mix the veterans and the rookies. There's some impressive rookies. And you got to mix gender. Uh, you have to mix geographic representation. And uh, there are going to be hurt feelings by the time uh, Horgan unveils his cabinet, for sure. And uh, one of the toughest jobs uh, in most years is a finance minister. And I, I think most people are looking at Carol James for that position. But uh, did the uh, the BC Liberals make it a little too easy to be uh, the next finance minister, Vaughn? <laughs> they they have in one respect the the financial statements that were released just before the confidence vote uh, last week, Terry, by Finance Minister Mike DeYoung. Uh, well, they raised two issues. One is that the Liberals are looking at uh, a bigger surplus even than the one that they thought they had in February. Um, and that, of course, raises the question of how do you lose an election with that much or do so poorly in an election with that kind of money rattling around in the Treasury? And, of course, the other question is, do the New Democrats really need to raise taxes to pay for all their promises when they've got this very large amount of money that uh, I think will be certified by the Auditor General? They've got a very large amount of money there in the form of a surplus. I just want to go back to something Rob raised about the disappointment people are going to feel about not being in cabinet. This, that's always an issue, and premiers always have that challenge. But it's a more acute challenge for ter- for um, for uh, John Horgan now. He cannot afford any slippage at all in terms of anybody staying home from a vote, or I don't think they ever crossed the floor, but just not being engaged. And uh, if uh, you take a veteran who's been there for 12 years, they don't get a cabinet post. Can they be counted on? to come in every day for votes. Uh, it's got to be careful in terms of recognizing the seniority aspect is now a critical factor in his, his judgment. And managing the caucus, of course, is uh, sometimes a very difficult thing to do. And so I, I think that will be uh, rightfully pointed out as a big challenge for Mr. Horgan. That's a, that's a good point, Terry, uh, Keith made there. If you look at a couple of governments across the country that have had to deal with these precarious balances, uh, the Lord government in New Brunswick uh, went three years with like a one-seat margin and having to appoint a speaker. And one of the reasons it came unraveled was that very thing that Keith pointed to, which is disgruntled members of caucus that wanted jobs and didn't get them. The poly NDP government in Manitoba was defeated, finally, by a member of the caucus who turned against it, because he didn't get a cabinet post. So, yeah, it's true. You know, initially it's going to be euphoria here in Victoria, finally getting into government after 16 years. But you can't offend, uh, afford to offend your members for very long if they start sitting on their hands and not showing up for votes. And on that note, we're, we're going to take a quick break, gentlemen. Uh, we'll be back with uh, our panel on Inside Politics on NL after this break. 
And we're back with our panelists, Rob Shaw, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, talking about the new British Columbia NDP government that will uh, take over July 18th. And uh, we're speculating on how long this government will last. Now, gentlemen, uh, people I talk to, both uh, elected, non-elected people, think actually this, this government may last a little longer than at first, uh, first people expected in that the BC Green Party, their primary goal is to get electoral reform and some form of proportional representation, meaning they would need to keep this government afloat until they were able to craft a, a question for the municipal referendum in the fall of 2018. Uh, are you hearing that same sort of uh, theme in, uh, in your circles? Oh, yeah. That's coming very, very strongly, Terry, from Andrew Weaver. And, I mean, he's, you know, he, he's, got, he's clear on that one. If they can't make minority government work up to the time of that referendum in the fall of 2018, they're never going to get the referendum through because people won't vote for proportional representation unless they think minority government can work. So I think you're quite right. His goal is to get through that vote, and then you have to have implementation after that. So he's going to try to keep this thing going long enough so that the next provincial election is on a system that will entrench the Greens, probably, in minority government. So I think you're right. Now, the interesting thing is, does the NDP have exactly the same strategy, or are the New Democrats thinking that they're going to look for a way out of this before that happens so they can go to the voters and win a majority? Yeah, I, you know, we, we hear a lot about the, uh, the newfound friendship between the NDP and the Greens, but, you know, in the past, the NDP has always seen the Greens as encroaching on their territory, and yep. I think the Greens always worry about the uh, uh, sort of being made irrelevant by the NDP. So, uh, Keith, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, can can this, this newfound friendship survive long enough to accomplish that green goal? Well, Vaughn raises a good point, and I've heard this even from New Democrats. Do they engineer their own defeat before they get to that, that point of changing the voting system? If they're this close to winning a general election, what does it take to put them over the top, and can they do it sooner than later? The longer they hang on to power, I think the harder it is necessarily for them to to retain it in, an, in another vote because all governments you know start accumulating baggage and all the controversies that come with come with governing they're going to start wearing a lot of things uh... but the other thing to keep an eye on is as weaver's made this his number one goal uh, getting a uh, proportional representation uh... it's likely other issues near and dear to the green heart are going to start falling off the table and you think things like there's no guarantee the site sea dam's going to shut down that's just simply going to be kicked over to the uh, utilities commission uh... kinder morgan it's very unclear how the government's going to stop the kinder morgan pipeline which is another big priority of the greens and then other issues that the greens have been looking for like uber uh, less likely to come in. Jeff Meggs, the new chief of staff to, to uh, John Horgan, when he was Vancouver City Councilor, was the number one opponent to, to Uber. Uh, uh, getting rid of tolls on the bridges, which is something the, the Greens really opposed. So the shopping list of things the Greens aren't going to accomplish start to grow between now and the time that uh, the electoral referendum starts kicking around. And I wonder if Green members share the same view of Weaver that top priority to the sacrifice of all other issues is simply changing the electoral system. So there's a, there's some tensions, I think, about to build there. Right. And uh, you mentioned Jeff Meggs, uh, Keith, uh, appointed chief of staff uh, to uh, uh, the premier designate, uh, John Horgan, also Don Wright, who will be uh, 
now able to use the curtains he measured up four years ago in his uh, office uh, heading up the uh, the public uh, service. Uh, Rob, uh, what's your view of, of those uh, picks? Well, you don't hear anyone say anything bad about Don Wright, basically, now. Uh, he seems to be pretty well respected on, on all sides. Uh, I can't say the same for Jeff Meggs, uh, who uh, has a you know his own list of uh, baggage and enemies uh, accumulated over the years. And uh, when we're talking about this new spirit of cooperation and uh, you know uh, conciliatory reconciliation by all parties to pass their legislation together. You, the first name that is, uh, comes to mind for Oregon's chief of staff is not Jeff Meggs, uh, based on his uh, track record uh, in government in the past. So that you know that is an interesting uh, appointment. It's a safe appointment for the new Democrats in the in the sense that he's a loyal uh, soldier. That they know that that he's a that that. Uh, He's going to put his elbows up and swing them around and get what John Horgan wants done in the legislature. But I, it's it's not it's not the procedural dynamic that's going to bring the alliance down in the House on committee, the whole and Speaker this and X vote that. It's the human dynamic of the New Democrats being willing to take all of the things that they wanted to do over 16 years, bring it into the legislature, and then have to beg for Andrew Weaver's support. Uh, and after a while, that's going to get pretty old pretty fast. And so I think that is the real tension, is that at some point the New Democrats are just going to want to do what they want to do. They're in government, they're in the Premier's office, they're the ministers, let's just get it done. And continuing to have to take a bended knee to Andrew Weaver, for people like Jeff Miggs, I think is going to be a tough uh, pill to swallow. And that, to me, is the tension that will really kind of crack the thing apart over the long time. And uh, Vaughn, uh, Jeff Meggs has quite a history in the public sector union movement. Uh, that's probably not going to win any favors uh, with Andrew Weaver, who is against the uh, the end of a secret ballot. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on, Weaver, on that? Weaver, uh, Terry, is now saying that all three Greens agree with him. They're all going to vote to retain the secret ballot for union certification. So the New Democrats can't get that through the House. They've only got 41 votes, and the Liberals aren't going to vote to change it. So that's one thing. The other thing that's interesting about the Jeff Meggs appointment, and and the Don Wright one, is, you know, uh, Rob's first question to uh, the New Democrats when those appointments were announced this week is, what are they going to be paid? What kind of a severance arrangement do they have? Because... If we have another election and another change of government, we could be looking at some fairly quick severance packages. Uh, the New Democrats haven't disclosed anything yet. They'll get back to us on that, but um, openness and transparency is not the rule around the contracts for those two appointees yet. Now, they haven't taken office yet. They don't do that until the uh, 18th of July, so we'll see if the openness follows that. Okay, much more to talk about uh, on the new British Columbia government that uh, takes place July 18th. Uh, We're going to take a break for the news at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be back with our panelists right after this. Welcome back. We have about uh, 12 or 13 minutes left with our panelists, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, we've talked about the uh, longevity, potential longevity of this government from an NDP Green point of view, but what about the BC Liberal Party? Uh, There may be some differing opinions on uh, how long they should try to uh, allow this government to go before they they force a confidence vote. Um, You know, will will we see a split in the BC Liberals in terms of their approach to uh, bringing this government down or or keeping it going to allow people to, I guess, expose uh, all governments... uh, as, as you said, uh, acquire baggage. Vaughn, how about you? 
I think that the Liberals, you know, for the short run, uh, Christy Clark's already said she's staying as leader. Uh, the Liberals are saying they're going to go into opposition and they'll have the biggest opposition in history and they'll do a good job. I think they'll have a couple of runs at the government this fall, but I don't think they're going to get them defeated on a confidence motion. My guess is they will wait and see where the government heads with the budget and throne speech next year, the big one that they bring in next year, which will be their more ambitious agenda, and then gauge the public reaction. Um, if they haven't managed to dent the government's hold on power by next summer, then I think you're going to get the Liberals started to talk about leadership change. I, I think that's something that uh, already we're hearing some speculation about, although I'm told that the uh, you know the group is holding together well at the moment, but inevitably, as time goes by, people start thinking about what comes next. Uh, Keith, what are your thoughts? Uh, will Christy Clark uh, stay on, or are you hearing any rumblings of uh, unease and, and looking for uh, someone else to, to take her place? Well, there's, there's going to be rumblings and there's going to be knives, but, you know, we'll see how long before they become sharp enough to actually do some damage here. I mean, we've all been through some, some leadership changes that have been forced upon parties, and generally, uh, generally they have to come... The mechanisms to force a leader out have to come from within the caucus. It really, it can't come from outside. It can be pressure building from outside forces. But until the caucus stamps its feet and says, you got to go, um, the leader who doesn't want to go, is, it's very hard to dislodge them. So uh, I think in the short term, I agree with Vaughn. Other than Christy Clark, I've not, talked to any, I've not found any B.C. Liberal who wants to dissolve the House anytime soon and get back out on the hustings. I think they know their best their best clear path back to power is to spend some time in the penalty box for a while, let the other guys drive the car and see if they have a few crashes themselves, and then go back to the electorate perhaps as early as next spring if they can find a way to bring, uh, to bring the, uh, the Liberals down. But I think the clock starts ticking on Clark's leadership once we hit Christmas, because if, if the Liberals are ahead in the polls and show on a consistent basis, I think that buys Clark some time. But if they're just simply tied with the NDP or there's really no change, uh, then the knives will become very sharp for Christy Clark and it'll be tougher for her to hang on. And of course, in politics, timing is everything. You, know, you look at the uh, new polling, which shows the B.C. Liberals uh, really increasing their uh, support. And, and of course, you look at the unemployment figures today, the economic figures, uh, a little bit uh, too late to, uh, to help the B.C. Liberal government. They must be gnashing their teeth a little bit in that caucus uh, around the timing of all those numbers, Rob. Yeah, well, I'm sure some people would uh, would like to go back in time and uh, urge uh, Mike DeYoung to insert more revenue optimism into his, some of his forecasts and kind of predict some of these things. But in, I guess in his defense, he said we just we got dealt the numbers we did and by the civil servants, and that's what we ran on. But I, I'm sure there's frustration there amongst liberals. I don't know. I, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I would have thought, uh, and I wrote, in fact, that I thought Christy Clark had the better part of a year. Uh, it gets a little bit dicey after that, but maybe even up to possibly, if depending on if she improves her popularity, addresses some of the issues, becomes an effective opposition leader. I, you know, but after the throne speech, which was such a grab bag of every single policy, just kind of a shameless inclusion of of all the other uh, all the other parties. I, you know, I, I wonder if she has shortened her lifespan uh, mm -hmm. a bit, either inadvertently or or on on purpose, because you know, it just seems like it's going to be harder for her 
to argue against some of the things that the NDP are going to do when she has proposed them in her throne speech. I know that there will be slight differences. Their child care plan is faster than 10 years, and you know, they're, but they're minor differences. And I, I, I was left with the impression after the throne speech, maybe she doesn't intend to be opposition leader for very long, and maybe that's, that was what that was, was the Hail Mary pass, and a new opposition leader is going to have to pick that up in the, in the months ahead. But I, you know, I, I don't know. And the, and the last line I had of the week was reading the, uh, the Prince George uh, Citizens editorial calling on uh, Shirley Bond to uh, leave uh, and join the NDP cabinet so that the North had some type of representation. I thought that was quite a, an entertaining piece, but that right now it's about caucus loyalty in the Liberals. And I, Terry, you would know better than I would, but could you ever see Shirley Bond leaving the Liberal caucus to join the NDP cabinet? No, I, I think that uh, the chances of that happening are extremely slim, but <laughs> but it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, someone like Shirley, and you look at Rich Coleman, they've they've been around for a long time, and, and how long will they want to sit in opposition? Um, you know, we saw that in the previous NDP government, uh, people like Norm Macdonald, who thought they were going to be in cabinet, uh, were disillusioned and, uh, you know, took a different path. So perhaps some of those uh, those real veterans uh, may not have the same fire in the belly, depending on how things go in the fall. Well, uh, Terry, the New Democrats are really hoping for that scenario because, of course, if you're not staying and you resign, there's a by-election. But it's the premier who decides when to call the by-election, and you can leave the seat vacant for six months. The liberals did that a couple of times. So then you can call the House back, and you don't have to worry about losing votes in the House because you've got a, a one-seat extra margin. So the, the New Democrats are counting on massive turnover, or at least some turnover among the liberals. And I, Rob makes a good point. I, when you think about it, between the... The underperformance in the election and the failure of Christy Clark's plan to get a second election, uh, I think her credibility is damaged with the party, whatever liberals say publicly. And uh, I maybe have to rethink my idea that she can survive for a year. But uh, the one thing about the NDP, this notion that the NDP could attract a liberal to cross over with the, the lure being a cabinet post, well, imagine the reaction internally of the NDP if... if one single MLA who had more than one term was left out in favor of a BC Liberal coming in. Go back to our discussion on the the need for for Horgan to ensure he doesn't disappoint people to the point where they don't show up for votes or at critical moments. And I think he'd disappoint a lot of people if he were to pluck a BC Liberal MLA and put him or her in his cabinet at the expense of a veteran who's been minding the store for for eight or twelve years. Yeah, these are the the types of things that can cause real emotional rifts in a caucus and. Uh, one thing about being a leader of a political party anywhere in Canada is managing all of those type A personalities, uh, very large egos involved, uh, and uh, the groups always are different from uh, from parliament to parliament, and uh, I think that's that's going to be a huge challenge. I mean, there will be some uh, targeted liberals, I think. I mean, if, if, if I was the NDP, I would uh, look at someone like Ellis Ross. What a prize to have someone like Ellis Ross cross the floor. Uh, but, and I don't know Ellis all that well, but the, again, I think the chances of that would be extremely slim. How long do you think she's got, Terry? How long do you think Clark has? Well, you know, Christie is one of these amazing people that is so tenacious, uh, you know, and I think that's her biggest strength. But I, 
you know, I, I can understand what Vaughn is saying. When, when you haven't performed and then you've done an about-face on this budget, I mean, even people like me, who, you know, is a real centrist, uh, express concern about things like taking on the, the debt of the uh, Portman Bridge, which will increase our debt-to-GDP ratio, which, you know, Mike DeYoung always told us would affect our credit rating, and so we didn't want to do that. It seems like a big 180, and I think there will be some people on the conservative side of the B.C. Liberal Party that are concerned with that approach. And if, if uh, Christie runs again as leader, she can't help but run on that throne speech that she delivered. Yeah, well, the issue of tolls now, I think, may have uh, seriously uh, decided the election outcome, because I think that was, that move by the NDP just simply to get rid of tolls on the Portman Bridge, that affects a good half dozen ridings, if not more, and they all swung the NDP's way. And I think that's, not, any government's now stuck in a box here on the issue of tolls, that it's good public policy and financial policy, but not political policy, and it's be interesting. I don't see any party changing their, their position on scrapping tolls come the next campaign. Yeah, the, the BC Greens are the only ones, I, I you know, that want to have proper road pricing, which I've always been a, an advocate for. If you want to have proper urban planning, you actually have to give people incentives to get onto transit and disincentives to get into cars. And, uh, you know, the NDP and the BC Liberals uh, really have taken the opposite approach because it is, as you say, more politically advantageous. Well, wait for it, Terry. I think it'll be back, and I think it'll be back not as bridge tolls, but as road pricing within Metro Vancouver. Uh, people who think they're rid of tolls may be surprised to see that coming back through the other door is a proposal to basically start charging you for the use of the roads in and around the lower mainland. And they're going to expect the local mayors in Metro Vancouver to wear that one. You know, get the mayor council who have talked about road pricing, get them to start crafting this and let them put it in front of the electorate before I think the NDP or the Liberals will. And it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, the relationship between the Metro Vancouver mayors and the B.C. government changes. I suspect there will be a honeymoon period for sure, and so perhaps that's one item that they can uh, they can agree on. Before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about Site C a little bit. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, again ruled against uh, 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 an, a move to stop the project. Uh, Vaughn, I think that uh, that's a pretty strong batting average uh, for yeah. Site C. You know, BC Hydro, for all the heat they've taken over Site C, has done something remarkable and unprecedented, not just in this province, but in this country. They've won 14 court cases. One or had dismissed or not had the, the appeals go through. 14 court cases involving Site C, many of them involving First Nations. And the courts have basically ruled that Hydro met all the tests necessary to consult and accommodate the first in, the, the interests of First Nations. And the courts have also ruled that the First Nations simply refuse to take part, and they can't get away with that. They have to take part in the process. They can't just say we have a veto and we don't want anything to do with this project. So Hydro's record on the court battles is important because I think, Terry, it may end up applying to other resource developments and other projects in the province. That Hydro showed you can meet the test. It's not an easy one. Hydro had 177 meetings over seven years to consult First Nations on this project. They signed six benefit-sharing agreements with First Nations up there. So it's not an easy test, but the test can be met. 
And I guess that, uh, as you say, will perhaps serve as a template for projects like uh, Kinder Morgan, Morgan, should they be uh, tested in court. Gentlemen, that's all the time we have. Uh, really appreciate uh, your insights, uh, and uh, thank you for uh, accommodating me, as Shane Woodford uh, has been away, and uh, look forward to the uh, July 18th swearing-in and uh, the new government taking uh, over in the legislature in the fall. Thanks, Terry. Bye-bye, Terry. Good morning, and uh, we're back uh, with Inside Politics, filling in for Shane Woodford. And with me for the last part of our program today, Barb Netterpal, the NDP candidate for Kamloops North Thompson. Uh, welcome, Barb. How, uh, how are you doing with all of the things that are going on right now? Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I have to say that it's this has been an incredibly interesting and exciting time for I, everybody. This is truly historic, uh, what we're going through. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be part of it. And as a NDP candidate that was unsuccessful, but you've got an NDP government coming online now. Uh, how does that change in terms of uh, what you do every day or your engagement with the party? Because I presume from following you on Twitter that you're still very engaged and uh, perhaps thinking of running in the next election. Perhaps you want to uh, state that unequivocally now. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is British Columbians. Uh, you know, I've always been a fighter for, you know, fairness and equality and, you know, health and safety and, and, and good wages and, you know, that sort of thing. Like, that's who I am. That's that's the reason why I decided to run uh, in the first place. And then when election night came, um, I you know standing in front of all of my amazing supporters and the people that worked so hard on the campaign, you know I was just filled with so much pride for the work that we did. Um, so despite the fact that we didn't win locally, my pride was you know like we worked hard, we did a good job. Uh, and at the end of the day, the most important thing for me was that we changed government. Uh, and you know finally, after holding my breath for you know seven weeks, we're finally there. So I, I'm feeling a lot more relaxed now. Good. And um, the the government, I think, one of its major challenges will be sort of reconciling this urban-rural divide. I mean, when you look at the NDP, have only four seats outside of the lower mainland and Vancouver Island. Uh, great swaths of the interior and the north uh, not represented uh, in government. And polls coming out showing NDP support in these areas, uh, relatively low compared to BC Liberals. So what can the John Horgan NDP government do to make the NDP more attractive for the next time you go to the polls? Well, uh, and that's a great question, and, and, and it's understandable why people would be concerned about that. Uh, it's something that I'm sure the party is looking at very hard. Uh, but at the same time, what we can do over the next, you know, as long as we possibly can, hopefully the full four years, is show British Columbians from all sides that, you know, we can, you know, make life more affordable. We can, you know, make sure that the public services are there when they need them. And of course, for jobs, particularly in Kamloops North, what we found out today was, you know, the unemployment rate is still at 8.8 in, in this region. I mean, we need to be able to show that, you know, we support jobs in the interior, and there's other ways to do that. So obviously, one of the projects up and down the North Thompson, as I'm very well aware, that would create a lot of jobs and is supported by communities throughout the North Thompson mm -hmm. is the Kinder Morgan Project. So talk about that a little bit and, sure. and, and perhaps a backlash that 
the, the NDP's stance on Kinder Morgan. How, may, how does that make it difficult for you as a candidate? Well, it's a little different being in the interior simply because, uh, you know, the people that I talked to on the doorsteps, you know, they were, they're concerned about jobs, absolutely, but they're not as concerned as the, you know, about the seven times increase in tanker traffic down on the lower mainland. Tanker traffic doesn't come up the Fraser River. So, I mean, it, that immediate threat isn't there for a lot of our voters. Uh, but when we talk to people about, you know, what was really important to us here in the interior, particularly from a labor standpoint, was we want to make sure that, you know, good jobs are being, you know, kept in British Columbia, that they're, you know, procuring British Columbians for those jobs, that they were using Canadian steel, those sorts of things. Because the long-term job prospects of Kinder Morgan, we all know, Christy Clark herself even said, we're looking at 50 long-term jobs for Kinder Morgan. So there's the immediate, you know, during the construction phase, yes, it will have that. And then there's, uh, you know, benefit agreements made with municipalities, absolutely. But there's other things that we can do that can increase jobs and, you know, and, and you know, tax base for municipalities other than Kinder Morgan. It's not the only answer. So when you look at the, the North Thompson in particular and Kamloops uh, as well, the forest industry is still a huge part of our economy. Absolutely. And is uh, obviously in dire straits at the moment with the yes. softwood lumber uh, discussions going on. What do you think uh, Premier-designate Horgan can do uh, to help protect the forest industry here in BC? I think first and foremost, like we has to focus on the softwood lumber deal, and he has to continue the work that uh, was started by Emerson, uh, and make sure that that you know goes forward. And I, I like the idea that he's going to be, um, you know, bargaining that along with you know like the Columbia River Treaty and, and getting this in before NAFTA. But just getting to the table is is you know ninety nine percent of of the issue. We have to fight for British Columbians and and the forestry jobs that we have. And one of the other uh, concerns that we've heard uh, from business people particularly and you look at uh, the, the north shore of Kamloops a lot of small businesses is the uh, the idea of a $15 an hour minimum yeah. wage can you talk about that and what you're hearing in terms of the impact on small business so when it comes to the $15 minimum wage that's something that I've been advocating for long before I even considered becoming a candidate uh, it's something I strongly believe in uh, and you know this this mentality around you know the sky is going to fall if we increase the minimum wage I mean throughout history it's never happened uh, you know the businesses tend to thrive you know the economy tends to thrive because people now have disposable income in their in their wallets the other thing is that most of the people that are on minimum wage aren't actually teenagers sitting in their parents' basement, you know, after school work. They're people that are actually, you know, paying rent, paying tuition, you know, raising their families. Uh, and, you know, if you work a full-time job, you should be at least at the poverty line. That's my belief. Uh, and I'll keep that until the day that I die. But at the same time, we also have to be mindful that, you know, I would rather pay an extra dollar for a, a meal out if I know that that person who is serving me can make rent that month. And, but from a business point of view, what can mm -hmm. you do to offset? Because there's no question right. that it will increase costs for small businesses. What kind of policies can uh, an NDP government institute that would offset some of those increased costs to small right. business with a higher minimum wage? So one of the uh, platform uh, was reducing the corporate income tax for medium small business was by 0.5%. So like that's uh, you know something that can definitely help. But again, when people have money in their pockets, it increases business, and you'll find that actually you know. 
know, around history, uh, you know, down in Seattle right now, there was a recently a report that came out that showed that the economy actually thrived after raising the minimum wage. So I think it'll actually help small business. Well, okay, that's uh, that's a very good point, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens as we move forward on on that front. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, obviously, is this relationship between the BC Green Party and the NDP. Uh, you know, we talked a lot this morning about the tenuous nature, perhaps tenuous nature of that relationship. Uh, what what is your relationship with the uh, the green candidates here in Kamloops? So do, do you kind of get together and talk about uh, you know policies together, or or you simply wait until election comes and and or is it all filtered through your through your leadership team? Well, see, that's um, that's taking into consideration that there's an agreement between the NDP and the, and the Greens with regards to forming government, uh, but that doesn't necessarily filter out down into the constituencies. I mean, I I like Donovan and I like Dan. They're 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 great people. Uh, but do we actually sit down and talk policy together? No, because we have very different uh, values and very different platforms. We do have some overlap, but the Greens also have overlap with the Liberals. So, I mean, to, for us to sit down and talk policy with them, um, you know, we have our own vested interests in certain issues, and as do they. Well, Barb Nerpal, thank you for coming in today. I'm sorry we didn't have more time to spend. Uh, we have to wrap it up there, but uh, that's it for me for Inside Politics. Uh, Shane Woodford will be back at his regular time next week. <laughs>